Welcome back to Finding Strength with Matt Quackenbush and Bethany Tenney. So we got to talk about Tenney's Pizza because it's still fantastic, just like it was last week and the week before and always. Uh, This episode is pretty special to me because I have a really cool guy coming on here with his wife, Chris Verkirk. And he's an avid uh, listener of the podcast, and he tried uh, Tenny's Pizza for the first time this past week. He came out, we recorded together, we went to Tenny's, got the Beast Pizza, thing is massive, fed like 20 people easy with a few pizzas, super affordable and delicious. Be sure to check out Tenny's Pizza whenever you can, download their app, get a discount off your first order, and if you do order... From Denny's Pizza, be sure to mention the Finding Strength podcast to get some deliciousness for yourselves. Also, this week we are sponsored by the Idaho First Responders Collaborative. Idaho First Responders Collaborative was created in 2018 to provide resources for first responders. They focus on four main areas, mental wellness, first responder cancers, health and fitness, and safety. You'll learn about first responders in this episode quite a bit. We don't really take care of our first responders very well in our culture. So people like Chris and other guys that I work with have created these kind of homegrown grassroots organizations to provide support. Uh, This one consists of first responders from fire departments EMS, emergency medical services, law enforcement, and dispatchers. It is represented by local, city, county, state, and federal agencies. You can check them out on Facebook. Follow the First Responders, Idaho First Responders Collaborative on Facebook. And if you are a first responder or veteran needing help with depression, anxiety, suicide, or general mental health care, call the Institute for First Responder Wellness. 877-470-5180 or if you're in Idaho call the Idaho Suicide Prevention Hotline 12083984357 hope is just a phone call away we're excited to have Chris on this episode and I'm excited for you guys to meet Chris and Julie Verkirk who are fantastic human beings so Let's do this. Episode 12, Finding Strength. We're back. (laughs) That's right. I never Again. know how you're going to start it. I try to, keep, I try to mix it up off. to just... That's one of your laugh initially, right from the start. So I know that we're in a good place. We're yes. ready to go. Are, are you good to go? Always. I'm good to go. Um, this episode is going to be sick. I'm stoked to have <laughs> Chris and Julie Verkirk in the house. This episode, I'm hoping um, we can deep dive into trauma, which is like my world, the stuff I do every day, PTSD. So I'm stoked. I'm excited. I love anything that talks with, when we talk about PTSD or any, yeah, I'm a trauma freak too, because I, 
I like to hear everyone's stories. I like to know. I got. I have plenty of my own. I like to hear what else is going on in people's heads. It helps me to feel more normal and more like I can be real because you guys are going through similar things. I mean, all of our stories are different, but the way we're dealing with it is a lot the same. So true. So sweet. How are yeah. you guys doing? Good. Doing awesome. Yeah. It's, it's rad to have you guys here. Thanks for having us. Oh, we're so excited. <laughs> I mean, you guys, the cool thing too yeah, is, I like it. is like... You guys are kind of our kind of OG listeners too, right? I mean, you've been listening to this thing since day one. We have, and we listen to some of them multiple times. Just, I think I get more out of them listening to them multiple times. That's cool. Do you have a favorite episode, Julie? Oh, gosh. Um, Putting you on the spot. I actually liked both of yours. They were both good episodes. Hers was better um, for sure. I really liked I Kevin's. Um, and Sam's was really good. Yeah. Oh, her, amazing. Isn't yeah. she? She's an incredible person. I can't believe she's that young. Right? Yeah. 18 years old. She's, yeah. she's an amazing, she's amazing person. Yeah. And Chris and I, we go, we go back. We've been together, working together, doing all sorts of fun stuff together for a long so time. So who's this weirdo named Matt Quackenbush? <laughs> <laughs> I uh, didn't have a clue who this guy was. Uh, I was headed to Utah to go to this... Uh, secret location in the mountains uh, up against the mountain range here called Deer Hollow. And I thought I'd do a little bit of research to see who this Matt guy was because I figured that he was probably going to be a therapist there. And uh, so I listened to, uh, you guys had like five, I think, podcasts at that point. And so I listened to all five on the way down. And uh, I really enjoyed listening to yours because I got an insight uh, to to who you were. Um, Sam's was amazing it really helped me understand suicide uh, a lot more i think i listened to that one on the way home after my treatment at deer hollow um and then uh yeah just recently kevin's like there was a lot of things that i related to kevin's as well with my own recovery that's cool man so chris tell us a little bit about you just you know your job what you do what's what's your story just a little So Julie and I, we live in Idaho, um, in Meridian, Idaho, right next to Boise. Uh, I am a captain of a fire department in the Treasure Valley there. Uh, I've been uh, in the fire service since I was 15, and I'm 41 now, so I've got quite a bit of uh, time seeing seeing that work. And along with that comes uh, a lot of misunderstanding, not talking about things, um, just questions uh, on some of the things that we see uh, there. But I've always known since I was about three years old that I wanted to be a fireman. And I I steadily uh, took that path to be a fireman. Uh, Went to paramedic school as well. And uh, now I have 13 years on the job as a professional firefighter, uh, as a captain paramedic. And I mean, we'll, we'll say you're a firefighter, but you're like, you're kind of a superhero, man. (laughs) <laughs> like let's let's be real like the stories you've told me i can't that okay i have to get my words together here the point is i don't think we the native normal population understand what being a firefighter entails first responder firefighter um corrections officer like the the craziness that you guys experience from call to call day to day I, I was my eyes were really open to this world as I started to work in a deer hollow. 
Man, you got some cool freaking stories. And, and I, I'd like to hear a couple of them, but more than anything, I kind of want to hear, like, why fire service? Maybe go back in time a little bit. Maybe even tell your story of how you guys met. Just to kind of help us get to know you a little bit. Yeah, so, you know, like I said before, when I was about three years old, I remember, um, I, I don't know what sparked it. It may have been, my parents bought me this fire helmet that had like the red light that was on top of it. You could turn it on, it had a siren, it was very annoying. Maybe it was a family friend that bought it for me or something. My parents hated that thing. I <laughs> loved it so much. But I remember I would uh, run around in, in the front yard with a garden hose pretending that the bushes were on fire and I'd put the bushes out. And that really kind of set the stage for uh, me wanting to be a fireman. I always knew since that age that I wanted to do that. Um, later on in, in uh, high school, there was a program uh, in my hometown of Wenatchee, Washington that was, a, was a, an explorer program at the fire department where kids of 15 to 18 could come in. They would give them a set of turnouts. They would allow you to ride along on the engines. Uh, I was even able to put out some fires, depending on the severity of that. Um, uh, I remember when I was an explorer, I did CPR on my first person, um, which was one of my core traumas that we worked at when I was at Deer Hollow with Matt. Um, And... it just really set the stage for what I wanted to do. I knew that I was a person of service and I wanted to provide service. I later found out through therapy that that was one of my core values, uh, family, service to others, trust and safety. And, um, you know, that all kind of fit right in with being a fireman. So that's kind of where it started for me. Um, after that, when I, when I became 18, I, um, uh, well, before I was 18, I had taken a college course and become an EMT, and I had to wait until I was 18 to, to get a license to be an EMT. Did a few things uh, volunteer-wise there for a bit, and then uh, I moved to Moses Lake, which is in the center of the state, and took a job at the age of, what, 19, 20? 20. At 20 uh, to be a dispatcher, and I spent uh, four and a half years behind a keyboard uh, dispatching, which has its own, uh, unique challenges. So I, I really empathize and, and know the work of being a dispatcher as well. I was going to say dispatcher almost seems, um, that sounds rough to me because you hear it, but you never get to be a part of it. Those folks have a terribly tough job, yeah. um, trying to control scenes only with, uh, the techniques that they can tell people, they can't physically be there, they can't see what's going on, they have to really try to dig deep down in, in, in what they're hearing to be able to deal with those situations. And Yeah, they're trying to, to do the best they can and they can't see anything. And trying to deal with a bunch of first responders like myself who may, may be um, wanting additional information that just isn't available. So they're in a very tough, tough spot. It's a tough career to have for sure. Um, so I did that at early, early ages and I was still a kid then really, you know, I didn't think so at the time, you know, we never do, but I was still a kid. Um, part of what I did there too, is I was a volunteer firefighter with a local, um, fire district there and went up through the ranks there and eventually became a part-time Lieutenant that was in charge of, uh, some residents and stuff like that. And, uh, that's really how I made my money in the summer times. We go out on wildland fires and, and make money and, and, um, 
that's kind of when Julie and I met was just before I moved to, to Moses Lake and, um, met her, uh, on the internet. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. So yeah, it was, um, my freshman year of college, I was going to Washington state university and it wasn't, it wasn't the dating website. It was just an open chat room and just happened to start talking because we were both in Washington. So I think that was spring of 97, um, eventually met in person just before the school year was up and been together ever since we got married in 99. So we just celebrated our 19th anniversary in September. Awesome. That's freaking sweet. And you guys have how many kids? Three. Three. Yes. Little hoodlums. Yes. We just met. I met your kids today. They're freaking awesome. They remind me of my kids. <laughs> He's got some legit energy for days. <laughs> yes. I was say, they're like your kids. Moment. They got energy. They got so much yeah. energy. And they yeah, and we waited fun. to have kids because um, of the fire service. He wanted to go to paramedic school because it opened up. He he noticed with all the testing because you have to do go through a testing process to get hired to departments, and noticed that the pool for firefighter paramedics was a lot smaller than firefighter EMTs. So he decided to go back to paramedic school, and that was one of the recommendations they met with the spouses and the students um, was to not make any major life decisions until they were done with paramedic school. So we waited until after that, and then again until he got a fire job to have kids. One of the things that I find really interesting is kind of understanding the roles that there are in a firehouse, like EMT versus paramedic versus there's so many different Role. So maybe just for like the lay person, explain what that looks like, what you go to school for, what the process is to become a firefighter, a paramedic, or a chief, or whatever it is, right? Or to me, like, what's the difference between a paramedic and an EMT? Right. I didn't know that. Yeah, so, you know, back when I was coming up uh, in school, they always said, you know, you should go to college and this sort of thing, and I, I really didn't do well in school. Um, uh, probably because of some of the childhood traumas that I had in school, um, that I'm noticing now, much like Kevin's story. Like I, I, I was not dumb. I knew the information, but I was flunking, flunking classes, uh, just cause I didn't want to be in that environment. Um, all the medical and fire classes that I took in high school, like I was acing those things because I, I really felt belonging there in those classes. Um, so, you know, again, this was a, a career choice that really seemed to fit with me. Uh, blue collar can work. Um, the family that that was at the fire department, I felt welcome there. Um, those sorts of things uh, really fit with me. But it also meant that I didn't really have to do any college. Like it was on the job training. Uh, when you get hired into a fire department, they most likely send you to an academy for anywhere from 12 to 16 weeks or more. Uh, to give you on-the-job training, and, and that's so that the departments can really handpick who they want and train them that the way that they want. Even back then, um, you know, there was a lot of talk about having basic education like AA degrees and, and that sort of thing, and we still struggle today, especially in Idaho, with trying to get past that uh, educational component. So even even right now, like Julie and I have talked recently about me going back to school to get that educational component to make myself more marketable to further positions. Like I said, I've been in the department for 13 years. I'm a captain now. And uh, that, that position that I'm in, in the future, is going to require a college degree of some sort. 
Um, anything past my position for sure is going to need college education. Now there's exceptions There's smaller departments out there and whatnot, but the department that I'm in is, is going to re- have to require that. Um, any chief level officer that that's administrative or is running uh, procedures and policies, or even uh, our line, what are we call battalion chiefs that actually run um, the fire engines and the crews on, on emergency scenes. Those guys are going to require to have some sort of management degree. On the EMS side of things, um, it, it really depends. What does EMS stand I'm for? I'm sorry, on the emergency medical services side. So like the, the ambulance folks, the people that if you call for a heart attack or a stroke or a car wreck or you know people that are taking you to the hospital in an ambulance, uh, in that world, um, there's several levels and it just depends on state certification on uh, what is allowed in each each jurisdiction. So in my state, um, we actually have a first responder level, which is just basic first aid, maybe a CPR, that sort of thing, but isn't, isn't really um, uh, a whole lot of um, uh, maybe just a couple weeks of schooling. And then we have EMT, an EMT basic emergency medical technician, which can be, you know, a couple months of schooling and it's a certificate. And then uh, from there you go to an advanced EMT or an intermediate EMT, which... So where is... So you said the EMS are the people on the the actual paramedics, right? Mm-hmm. What Where is the EMT? So the EMT, like the all these varying levels can work on either a fire engine or on an, an, on an ambulance. Okay. Um, the intermediate has a little bit more uh, technical training, like starting IVs, having some advanced airways... And then the highest level of care is a paramedic. So you have to go to school for that. Um, my particular schooling was a certificate um, program, and I could further go on to get a degree in that. Uh, some jurisdictions are requiring that position to be uh, a degree position. And uh, not currently in Idaho is that. I know that I think in Oregon it's that way. I'm not sure about Utah. Um, but as we, as we go further and further and see the need for that educational component, it's going to be required. So I, I, when I was in Moses Lake, um, I decided that, you know, about 80% of the calls that we went on were EMS related. So I wanted to be good at that, that 80% of my job. So I decided I was going to go to paramedic school. Um, I hated needles. And so for me, that was like, I don't know that I can do this. And, um, do you, are you, can you put an IV in someone? Yeah. Yeah, I can now. Does it uh, creep you out or have you no, not used to it? No. So, uh, you know, when you go to paramedic school, you got to get those things done to you mm-hmm. because that, you're, you're the pin cushion of your partner. Yeah. You you're know? both like each other's guinea pigs. Right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. So you get over that problem real quick. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. He would ask to practice on me and I never did let him. I wasn't, I wasn't about to let him. I don't blame you. Poke me with a needle. I've been poked so many times with needles in my life for like babies and, you know, fluid IVs and who the freak knows what else. And so I, if my husband did, I'd be like, nope, (laughs) find some, someone else that needs you. Yeah. I love it. So, you know, in the field, the the paramedic, which um, most urban areas have paramedics and, and uh, we're starting to spread those paramedics out to the rural areas where we're where the paramedic is really needed. Uh, paramedics can give all sorts of medications, life-saving medications. They can defibrillate the heart or give it electrical uh, shocks for the heart. Uh, we can read the, the heart rhythms and, and 12 leads and 
Um, they tell us that we never really diagnose because it needs a, a physician, but we are. I mean, we're really looking at signs and symptoms and uh, the way the patient's presenting in order to diagnose and treat those patients in the field. And that's what you get uh, either on a fire truck or in an ambulance. In my system, we have a tiered response where uh, in my city, we have paramedics on the fire trucks. We do not transport. We don't have ambulances. There's a third county service that's run by the county called um, uh, Ada County Paramedics, and they have paramedics on the ambulances, and we respond together and we work together. So uh, my paramedic license is just as good as theirs. However, my responsibility is usually within that first five to ten minutes of care, and then I transfer it to them to take them to the hospital. So it really helps in that tiered response. Yeah, isn't that cool? Like, there's yeah. it's so intricate. I had no idea how many layers and how complex and like even like the guys on the engine who are running the hoses like have to understand pressurization and have to. I mean, it's well, I've it always been because <clears throat> yeah. we've had. I mean, I've had multiple children taken on an ambulance to the hospital, and multiple even firefighters. I remember um, Ripkin. When he was, that's my youngest, when he was like one, he um, had a seizure. My kids, a couple of them had febrile seizures. And the firefighters weren't the first ones to show up and actually like got everything under control. It was really cool. I didn't, I never realized till that point that they're actually trained to do. And like you said, maybe not all of them, but um, a couple of the guys were. Trained at least, there was not much they could do, but they at least recognized what it was and how to move forward from there. So that was really cool. cool. Do you, um, as paramedics, do you guys innovate? We do. Yeah, so we can do advanced airways. Um, We can do a a procedure called rapid sequence innovation, which actually paralyzes people so that we can get that airway. Get it in. Yeah, And, and one of the things that I wanted to bring up Two that just came to my mind about uh, your story and Kevin's story um, was was from the perspective of a first responder. Um, I told myself I wasn't going to cry today. <laughs> I never when, tell myself that. So <laughs> when we um, when we go on those children calls, um, we we have this unspoken rule that we have to be in control and be in charge and be the one that knows everything. And that is an immense pressure on our first responders. And when we go to those kids, especially um, where we know that they're so full of life, it's very difficult to um, hide that emotion and put it away and do your job and some of my, the most core traumas that I have are from from children, from children. I bet. And um, you know when it when Kevin talked about you know there are so many things that were happening. The first responder f- feels that exact same thing, even though it's not our child. Mm-hmm. Um, we put ourselves in the sh- in in those shoes of like this is a human being, and they're they're our responsibility whether they survive in this instance or not. And we try to tell ourselves often that, you know, this isn't our emergency, it's somebody else. But in reality, it really is our emergency because we're, we're standing in the shoes of being the person that's being called upon to, to know the knowledge and, and, and be able to do something in this scenario. Um, very, very tough. 
uh, to stay on top of that game for a full career of 30 years. And that's, sure. that's the struggle, right? That's why it gets to a breaking point for most, if not all, first responders, right? And, and it's, it's really a conversation that hasn't really been talked well, about actually, for years. Like I actually years thought about ago. this later on because we had, you know, with our situation, with when Brady got ambulance to the first the hospital, I remember thinking probably a year later, like, because... I wasn't sitting in the back of the truck. I was sitting in the front and I was sobbing uncontrollably, like probably screaming. I don't even know what I was saying. I was at it. And I have this guy sitting next to me who's just like trying to drive the ambulance. And I, I remember thinking later on, like that had to be so hard to hear and watch. Cause I'm just, I, I can't do anything and I'm uncontrollable and unconsolable at that point. And that's their job. Yeah. They do that That's every what they day. have to hear and listen to. And I just right? thought, gosh, I have so many issues from seeing that night. For Obviously, it's my kids, so it's a little bit different. But I, I remember thinking after that, like, how do you see, how do you unsee that? How do you, you know what I mean? How do you unsee this? For first of all, that a child that you have to deal with and get them somewhere. But then also you see us, you see us parents. And I mean, those the firefighters that they were so awesome and they came in the hospital and they were trying to do anything they could do to be helpful. And then we even had one who came up to primaries, you know, later on and brought us like a gift basket cause it, he was there and it just affected him. And I just, that's something you're seeing probably regularly. Right. I mean, I'm, I'm hearing these things all the time. So I'm thinking this is happening a lot. Yeah. You know, in, in the system that I work at, um, my, my station probably, we work a 4896 schedule. So I'm at the firehouse for 48 hours a time. Uh, I have four days off and then repeat that. Um, we, we're about 120,000 now people in, in Meridian. We have five stations and we're running in that 48 hours, an average, I would say, of 8 to 12 calls in the 48 hours, and that's that's average. That's Some lot. days we just get slams. Other days, you know, it's been a while since I haven't had a call on a rotation, but that does happen as well. And that's on top of fire calls and stuff, too, that we're, we're dealing with in public service and our training hours that we have to uh, keep up on, both on the EMS and the fire side. So, yeah, um, you know, our, our toll that, that happens to us is, is the body count. Like we have body counts, each and every one of us. And police officers are the same way. Dispatchers are the same way. Like their body counts are what they're hearing through, through the microphone. Um, and, and that's really part of the problem is that we don't know how to deal with that body count. And, um, the, the further up that you go in your career in, in years or even in, um, experience, uh, for, and for me, you know, being a captain, that pressure of having yet again, to be the guy that knows what to do in every situation when we really don't have a whole lot of training in, in, in doing that. We have great training in, okay, if this building is on fire, what part of the building are you going to go in? Where are you going to deploy your resources? How are you going to put the fire out tactics wise? We have tons of great training on that, but I literally have zero training in dealing with a grieving mother. Like how do I deal with that? Yeah. And yeah. so we got to pull that out of our pocket and, and, and throw it out. And, and I'm, 
I'll just venture to guess that the guys that were showing up at the hospital to to support you, that was their way of grieving. That was their way of trying to dealing connect and dealing it with, with it themselves. Well, because the myth is that these big, tough men have, you know, steel hearts and they don't feel stuff. And they're able to go into these situations. And like you said, I mean, a minute ago you said we have to know all the answers to every one of the problems. That's literally impossible. But that's the standard that these first responders are held to. And police officers, it's the same way, right? Like, just kind of like a social commentary on the expectations you have of first responders. I mean, that's that's the standard that we have as a society for you guys. Well, I think the more so, that's probably the standard you have for yourself. Because of the societal pressure. But I think, because I always that. think, yeah, because I think you know that they're doing the best they can. They, you want to save everybody. Right. And so to you, it's like, well, I want to know everything I can know. So that way in whatever situation comes about, I'm, I'm going to be the hero. I'm going to fix it. I'm going to save everyone. And you can't let people die. And to tell you the <laughs> yeah. truth, like our train really leads us to believe that too, that, oh, yeah. that if you do CPR on somebody, it's going to work. Right. And that's mm-hmm. one of the key yeah, every things. Time. Yeah. And I, that's, that's one of the key things that affected me when I was 15 years old. Like, yeah, I got this great skill. I know how to do this. And I go do a CPR on this 50-year-old man back in the 90s, which our survival rates back then are way lower than they are today. Um, and, and he didn't survive. And now I walk away from that going, I didn't do my job. Because did I, I didn't, do wrong? Because I didn't save him. Well, and the natural response to an idealistic perfectionism, which is what we're talking about, right? Like... I have to be flawlessly perfect. And if I am flawlessly perfect and I do everything right, this guy will live. Inherently flawed thinking. Impossible. That's just that's just that's just no, simply not. I agree hundred percent, but that's what we all do to ourselves. That's what we do to ourselves. I do the same thing relatable. to myself with my totally. kids. Well, oh, yeah. I'm the mom and I'm in charge, so if something happens to them, it's my fault because I must have done something wrong. Right. Ladies and gentlemen, this is trauma one oh one. <laughs> that is that is why trauma exists because we somewhere along the lines believe we have this requirement this expectation for ourselves that we have to be perfect and Brene Brown calls it perfectionism right yeah. she claims herself that she's a recovering perfectionist that's what she talks about all the time in all the books that she does I, I, same thing like we do trauma work so how, how your it's the same thing how do we get past that Acceptance. how do you get past that how do you get past I am not going to be perfect. I'm, you're always going to do the best you can, but when someone dies, uh, you know, and it's mm. while you're on the clock or whatever, on your watch, how, yeah. how do you keep yourself from doing that? Because I think that is the most important is keeping yourself from feeling that, that shame or blame or whatever on yourself. It's not someone else. It's you doing it. Right. Right. You know, I, I didn't know how to do that before I went to treatment at Deer Hollow. And, um, you know, going into it, I I thought that I was doing pretty well. And um, now what I can what I can do post-Deer Hollow is they teach you about what Matt just talked about, touchstone memories, stuck points. Um, um, I just lost the other word for it. Storylines. Storylines. I already said that one. Touchdown, marriage, requirements. requirements. Any of those things that those 
bullshit things that we tell ourselves. Like I can save a hundred percent of the people that I come across. Like that's probably a storyline that I tell myself that if I I don't don't even know. Right. And so it's these things that we tell ourselves constantly. Like I have to be the best captain in the world. I have to be the best paramedic ever. I have to be strong and stand up and, and show my guys that, that these things don't affect me. It's all crap. That's all crap. And so post-treatment, what you, what I've had to do, because I had a lot of anxiety about going back to work, and, and, and for me it was suicides and kids um, going on those calls. Uh, I had a lot of anxiety about seeing the next suicide call, and I haven't been there to that one yet, but I do have this tool set now that I can go, okay, um, you know, all these things about me not being able to save this individual is, is just crap that I've told myself. And I, I need to recognize that, dismiss it, or um, work through some sheets that they gave me some tools on and just m- and move on from that. And so just to help me deal with being able to figure some of that stuff out. The other side of that is, is, is no different than our fire training, is that we need to train on this mental health awareness portion. And there's no programs that I've come across that are out there yet for police officers and firefighters. I mean, this stuff needs to be taught, from my opinion, in the academies. Like we need to be talking about trauma and post-traumatic injury because, you know, the statistics show that, you know, not everybody is affected by this. It's about 35-ish percent or so of people that are affected from this. And that's a good chunk. Report their effects. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a third of the population. And and that's why I'm here today with Matt is to tell my story and let first responders know that, you know, it's okay to come out and, and tell your story. It's okay to feel these emotions. It's okay to feel the things that you're feeling about being inadequate in your, in your profession or your job. Um, these are all normal feelings that we all have. And it's okay to talk about these things because I'm standing here today, I'm talking about it. I've been through treatment, and uh, what wasn't working for me then obviously was leading me down a path of not being a first responder, or in my case, not even surviving. Well, even if you don't think that you're going to be one of those ones who's going to develop PTSD, which some people won't, they just they're just uh, the way they handle things are different. Chances are you're going to know somebody who who does. Just that's the nature of, of that work. I mean, whether it's affecting you or one of your coworkers, it's it's gonna show up. And you've been Chris's partner in this thing for nineteen years now. Yeah. I mean, what's what's it like for you as his wife dealing with the aftermath of post traumatic stress injury, post traumatic stress disorder? It's it's been interesting. Um, interesting. That's a good word. <laughs> Please it's, fluff it up for us a little bit. Be real. What what's it been like? Because the thing is, Chris, you, you don't you don't you didn't come to Deer Hollow because you were just having some problems, right? Like that's not that's not a thing. The level of effect on our lives that trauma can create if it goes unchecked, it's it's unimaginable. And it's largely ignored because we normalize what we think is anxiety or depression or panic attacks. And really the root cause for these things is trauma, right? So, so as you guys 
made this decision to come to your hall, but I'm sure there was a whole mess of story before that. And how did it affect you, Julie? The, yeah, there definitely is a story to it. The I think the original turning point or breaking point was a little over three years ago, um, which was a suicide call he went on. And that was the one... I was at work when he went on that, and I got a text from him saying, hey, I had an exposure on a call. I need to go to the hospital and get checked out. Okay, kind of, you know, made me a little nervous. I mean, I'm not naive to the job. I know there's the dangers, but you can't, as a spouse, you can't let that consume your life. You have to understand that he has the tools, his crew has the tools, and they know how to survive. Um, so it, it didn't hit me too bad, but it made me a little nervous. Next day, it started to hit me a little more because uh, we had a little chance to talk more. I literally wanted to go sit in the corner at work and cry because it it hit me, it started to hit me harder. And then it was the point of what we were waiting for was test results to come back to see if this person had any like HIV or anything like that that he was exposed to. Um, had to protect our intimacy together. That hit me hard. This went on. So this was in August. I could see over the next few months with Chris more anger developing, very short fuse. I was walking on eggshells around him, sleeping a lot. He was he was physically there, but he mentally wasn't there. And it probably went on through, I know it went on through that winter. We had uh, one of the paramedics from the area gave us a book to read. What was the, What was the name of that one? Oh gosh, I wish I would have brought it, but she gave us this book to read and I set it on my, my nightstand and it sat there for a few months that January I decided to take it with me too. I was going as a, a counselor for middle, middle school camp. So I decided to take the book with me to read on my downtime, finish the book in two days while I'm reading the book, things are just hitting me of this section on trauma and PTSD of that's Chris. That's Chris. All the Every signs. box was checked of it. And it what just boxes. Cause part of this too is awareness, right? What are the boxes that you saw? So we heard anger. We heard walking on eggshells. Mm-hmm. We heard sleeping. sleeping. Yep. The seclusion, um, a lot of isolation, no, yep, a lot of isolation, not wanting to do anything. Um, trying to remember all the rest. Yeah, of That's them. a big one. The lack of interest in things mm-hmm. that used to be interesting. Um, drinking was on there. Mm-hmm. More drinking. Yep. Yeah. And, it just, it, it hit me hard because yeah. it just made more of a reality of like, I'm seeing this developing in my husband mm-hmm. and it's, it's not going well. So I came home from that weekend. I think my birthday was a few days after that. And we sat up late just talking about stuff. Cause I had a lot of, a lot of emotions hitting me from this book and walk through things. Um, he, oh, that's called bulletproof spirit. And it's a really good book. I, I tore it up with highlighters. <laughs> Um, he short time after that, after talking, made the decision to go in for treatment with a therapist. A few people had recommended. So he went, I think three or four visits, had some five visits, had some EMDR done, um, for treatment. Never went back after that or went and saw anybody more about that. Things got better. I could tell he was a little less angry and just a little better, you know, about things with the kids and I. And then about two years ago, stuff kind of started to go downhill a little more again. Those same 
anger issues started to come up. He'd come home from shift and just short fused little things would set him off. Um, the kids would do something it would set him off. And I just didn't, I didn't know what was going on, but I knew things were not going well. Um, it, I'd begin to shut down. We wouldn't communicate. Things would fester. Fights would happen. And it just was this, this horrible cycle that we were going through with stuff. Um, and you just, you didn't have anybody to talk to. There's such a stigma about it that you just, you don't, oh, you don't talk about that mental health stuff. No, we just, we don't do that. Meanwhile, your people on the outside thought we were fine, but meanwhile, stuff's crashing down at, at home. Um, and I guess what more was the turning point of him getting help was back in, was it June that Amy came up? It was it was before that, though. Was it? Before she came up. Yeah, because I guess you went to, Chris went to, F. it's called FDIC, so Fire Department Instructor sure. Conference in April of just this last year uh, in Indianapolis and made it a point to attend classes that were related to PTSD and firefighter marriages. Came back with a lot of good information, Re- brought a book home for me, read another book, more stuff coming up of, yeah, this, this stuff's coming up in his life, in my life, affecting our marriage. And then developed, that's when the, the first responder conference decided to get developed. And we can go into the, more of that later. Um, but we had Amy, so one of the therapists from Deer Hollow, came up to the Boise area to teach a class to these guys that had... Or just, I guess, teach a class, give some instruction to these guys that were starting this wellness collaborative in the area. So I felt as a spouse that I needed to attend it and gain knowledge for everything. Because it's not just the guys, it's the spouses that are affected too. And sitting there through Amy's class and just taking a lot of stuff in and just going through my head of, wow, Chris is, I see Chris dealing with this stuff. Yep, that hits on the head. He's, he's, He's got that going on. Wow, you know. It'd be kind of good if he could go there, not, not sharing it with him, just thinking in my head, well, I wish he would go there. And then probably six weeks later, stuff still rough at home, eggshells, arguments, just, just not good. Just not a good environment. We're sitting in bed one night and Chris says to me, he goes, so what do you think about me going to Deer Hollow for four weeks? And I just broke down into tears. Because I knew, I'm like, yeah, you need to go because this isn't going to get any better. Hunting season was coming up, and he would normally take a you know two- to three-week hunting trip. And I told him, I said, this isn't something that's going to resolve itself with a hunting trip. You need help now, or it's not going to get better for any of us. And it was, it's, it was hard to say it out loud, but it was a decision we made together that if we're going to continue on that this, this has to happen. So it, I didn't force him to go. It was a mutual decision. That's cool. And then you showed up on my doorstep and step one, step two, and now yeah. you're all better. No, that's a huge deal because I feel like so many people um, just don't recognize it. It's like you think, like you said, everyone thinks you're doing okay. You're getting up. You're going to work. You're doing your thing. Your kids are taken care of. There's food on the table. There's you're just in that monotony of life. And so everything's fine when the reality is 
like mentally it is slowly crashing down where you feel it. You feel that weight. And as a spouse, I can imagine, I mean, I know with, you know, my husband and I, it's, I can feel, he doesn't have to tell me anything. I can feel when things are rough and vice versa. He feels the same way about me. There's days where I'm just so somber and struggling and I don't have to say anything. And he's just like, you know, what's going on? What's, what, what do you need today? And so I can imagine with you, you feeling this for weeks, months, years, and just going like, come on. I mean, I'm sure there's like this huge answer for you where it's like, oh, finally, there's a place that maybe like we'll try anything, right? You're to that right. point. Like go do what you, whatever you need to do. Let's, let's help this. Yeah. And that's it's just oh, the years of it building up and it. It's just finally like, okay, yeah, it's exactly that. We got, we got to try something because nothing at this point has worked. I could read every marriage and self-help book out there, but I, I don't think it would have helped if we didn't get to the start of, you know, digging out the trauma and the root of the, the cause of it all. Um, it just was so much emotion, even, even leading up to when he was going to go. Just a lot of anxiety from the both of us. And then I had noticed too, just going back on when dealing with his emotions and my emotions, um, I would get anxious, have anxiety the night before he would come home from shift and work myself up and be like, okay, are the dishes done? Are the house clean? Is everything put away? Are all the chores done? Cause I didn't want to give him something to get angry about when he came home. When you didn't know what he was going to experience. Right. You're like, I don't know what tonight was going to, is going to bring, right. you know, what trauma could keep adding on to what's already there. And I didn't even realize that I was doing that until, I mean, it's probably been the last six months that, that that was happening on that, that night before he would come off shift and something that may have sat him off one, one shift would be different the next. And it was just that cycle again with myself of, okay, is this, is everything good? I mean, there's times I'd stay up till way early in the morning, making sure everything was perfect, you know, to, just to make sure it was okay when he came home. And Chris, did you recognize through this that this was happening or did you feel like you were doing okay? Yeah. So, you know, that was, um, when the first issue really started coming up was about 10, 10 years into the job. That was three years ago ish. Um, I had been on several gnarly, um, suicide calls. Uh, I had had at least, Eight, I would say, children or um, I was gonna say, what age are these suicides? I mean, not that it matters, but just uh, sometimes it puts a picture to the yeah. Most of the suicides that I dealt with were uh, men in their thirties to forties. Why would that matter to you? Which is what my age is, right? Mm -hmm. And it really correlated with the traumas that I had. Because um, when I was 16, I had a suicide attempt. When I was uh, 16, uh, I was in the basement in some some pretty dark times, and I uh, had my dad's 22 um, gun, and really was like, I, I don't want to do this. And the fire department was the only thing that that kept me from not pulling the trigger, is that because I, I felt like I had family and belonging in the fire department, and knew that I just had a purpose there. Um, Fast forward to when shit's not going well at, at the fire department, guess where that takes me, 
right back to, you know, that false belief that I had that being a fireman is the only thing I have, this false identity of this is the only thing that that is who I am. And if I can't make this work here at the fire department, I can't be that strong individual. I can't show up and be authentic every single day, every single hour, every single minute without hiding all my emotions and my feelings and all that, then maybe I'm not good enough for this world. And um, I had a suicide call of a middle-aged man who uh, also had uh, had had uh, died by suicide um, with with a shotgun, and uh, it really hit home. And that was the one that uh, I had an exposure on. I had blood all over me and in my in, in my eyes and my mouth and stuff from some procedures that I was forced to do uh, to to save his life and. Um, he eventually passed, but we were able to, to keep him alive enough for some organ donations, um, and that sort of thing. So there was a lot of good that came out of it, but. So you showed up on scene and this guy was still alive? He was. Yeah. Uh, and I don't know how graphic I want to be here, but, um, I just remember he had no face and that's really what, um, struck as me is that this is a human being with no soul that I'm you know, because of our policies and our procedures and what we do, we have to save this individual. He's still got a pulse. You got to work. Got to work him. Yeah. yeah. And, and the massive amounts of blood that were there were just horrific. And so, um, during the procedures, uh, several of us, you know, had, had exposures and whatnot. And after we deliver him at the hospital, we go through, um, some procedures just to get the patient tested and myself tested to make sure that there wasn't, um, um, communicable diseases that were transferred to me like HIV or, or, um, 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 hepatitis, those sorts of things. And, and that's really when it had a, had an impact, uh, from what I now know on my, on my core values It impacted my family life, which is a core value for me and impacted my service because, I was angry at this person for putting me in that position of, of being exposed and affecting my family. But, but also, um, I wanted to let him die because that's what he chose to do. Like that was, I wanted to give him his agency to do that. And I felt that if I saved this man, I was saving nothing like a man with no eyes, no nose, no mouth, no ears, no senses at all. Like what type of quality of life am I leaving him? And, and, during the event, you really don't think about those things because you're so engaged in task level things on saving this individual's life. But, um, you know, just minutes after we deliver into the hospital, these are the stuck points and the storylines that you start telling yourself, like, I just, I did this patient more harm than, than good. And those things, uh, really started to set in. And, um, what became next in in the days, weeks, months to follow were really uh, visual disturbances during the day, um, reoccurring nightmares. Um, I could smell the gunpowder from what was still in the air when we when we were in there uh, right after he had he had done that. Um, the screams of the girlfriend that was there uh, on the scene. Um, and just the visions, uh, constantly. And, um, it would be triggered very quickly, um, just by the word suicide, it would be triggered. And then those images would be in my head, um, 
constantly thinking and rattling around for hours at a time, if not days. And even when people would ask me, you know, so innocently, people that just met me or whatnot, they'd come to the firehouse and they would ask, you know, what's the worst call that you've ever been on? And I'm just going to put this out there right now. That is the worst thing that you can say to a first responder, a police officer, a fireman, an EMT, a dispatcher, because what that does is that takes us literally right back to that moment, our worst call that we've ever been Because it pops up right in your head. Right away. Boom. There it is. And for me, what that did is it was stuck there for days on end and nightmares. You know, that's, a, that's really good for people to know. Oh, yeah. yeah. And it's totally I don't innocent. think I would know that. Yeah. You're just trying They're, to get to know someone. You're like... You want to connect yeah. with that person that you're interested in their field, well, right? Well, and let's be honest. When someone's saying, well, what's your, what's your worst call? In their mind, what they think is the worst is nothing near yeah. what you have had to deal with. Yeah. And oh, so, you know, what, what I would usually respond with is like, yeah, you don't want to know what that is. But we've had a lot of other good things that we've done. Meanwhile, I'm seeing the visions of, of that call replay over and mm-hmm. over and over in my head. Um, today, it's, it's not that way. Like, I've had some help with EMDR, with core traumas, dealing with the, the stuff from my childhood, uh, dealing with suicide, shame, resiliency, all these tools in the toolbox so that now it hasn't happened yet, but hopefully the next suicide I can go on, I can like go back to the station, I can decompress, I can pull out a CPT or a, a, a Tysis T-log and, and, and figure this out on my own or what Matt's favorite is mind-body bridging uh, workbook and be able to figure some of these things out. And if I say these those three or four things to any fireman in the United States, there's probably uh, probably an, uh, only a handful of people that I can count on my hands that know what those things that are. That understand it. Yeah, so why are we not teaching those things to our firemen? Well, the, the reality of it is, is that because we're not affected by it right off the bat. So if we teach these things to the guys in the recruits about awareness and whatnot, that's great, but it's really not going to affect them for 5, 10, 6, 10, 15 years. And then at that point, we haven't had any continuing education on it, revisiting that, and um, it, there just hasn't been a focus on that. So we're kind of, uh, you know, that's that's what we're here to do with um, um, what, what Julia talked about on my journey of me figuring out that I needed to go to treatment was I had gone to FDIC and I was, I only took, um, mental wellness courses at FDIC thinking that, Hey man, I really need to bring this back to the guys that are, that are in my department. I come back and there was a guy that had been to Deer Hollow, a fellow, uh, firefighter of mine from the Valley had been to Deer Hollow. So I reached out to him and I said, Hey, uh, they're doing some good things in Florida with uh, developing a collaborative on talking about mental wellness in Florida. What do you think we do this in Idaho and start this collaborative? And he's like, I think it's awesome. It's brilliant. It's a great idea. And so we got together and and kind of launched uh, what what is now called the Idaho First Responders Wellness Collaborative. And um, instead of just focusing on just firefighters, we decided that we wanted to focus on all first responders in Idaho uh, to put uh, these things out there. So we focus on mental wellness, obviously, is, is the big one, but physical fitness, um, physical fitness and nutrition, um, uh, um, overall wellness, uh, safety issues, and uh, cancers. 
Because there are cancers out there that are specific to just first responders. There, I didn't know that. Yeah, like a lot what? of a lot of folks don't know that. Um, so for for firefighters, I'll give you one example. A firefighter is four times likely to get testicular cancer than uh, than the general population. Um, when you think about firefighters and breathing and smoke, we always think like lung cancer, yeah. right? And we've done a really good job of using breathing apparatus and stuff like that. Um, so it's, it's sometimes those things, but it's other things that are, that are like, um, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma that attack the, the blood systems and stuff in the body. It's, um, uh, thyroid cancers, it's skin cancers. It's all these cancers that are just kind of the one-offs that general population don't have. And the reason why that is specifically for firefighters, but it also affects, uh, some of these affect EMS workers, police officers, and dispatch. And I'll talk about that here in just a second. But for firefighters is when we go into this confined box, your house or your business that's burning, all those products of combustion of today's materials are all chemical-based, right? We no longer have furniture that's made just of wood. It's all plastics and chemicals and petrol fuels and those sorts of things. And when you put it in a box and those things heat up to 1,200 degrees or whatnot and they mix with those other chemicals, we have no idea what we're being exposed to. It's like literally a, a chemical plant that's on fire and we're going into those things. And what's happening is, is all those chemicals are being absorbed in through our, our skin system and, and into our bodies. And we're just now starting to figure this out and know that um, this is what the exposure is. Now, is it is it practical for us to send our firefighters in to burning buildings in a plastic bag wrapped up and zip locked in there that's not practical right so that we know that there's these inherent risks but also on top of those inherent risks are the stress of the job and that is the core reason why our first responders are getting these cancers because of the stress and the cortisols and the adrenal uh, failure that that i was in uh, from constantly being in the Olympic system. And I know you've talked a little bit about that before. So that's a lot that I just said, but we, <laughs> we had created this uh, uh, collaborative to um, uh, really focus on those things for all first responders in Idaho. And so when I did that, um, as, as Julie talked about, we had Dr. Crawford come down and, and give us an initial training on uh, just first responder mental wellness. And um, a couple weeks later, things from her class were rattling in around my head. She had sent me a text message. I said, hey, we might have a possibility, or we were just talking back and forth, and I said, I might have a possibility to go on a deployment to California. And she just sent the text, said, I, I, I don't think you should go. I think you need to come to Deer Hollow. And I was like, oh, this is that's bull crap. You know, I uh, this is what we do. I mean, I jump on a heartbeat to go to California on a deployment. She she says, I think you're your um, what's the word I'm looking for? Just trying to disguise or deflect deflect from what's really going on, and and it still didn't didn't you know register to me. I'm like, no, I'm fine. I'm doing all right. And, and I think that is what really got me to really start thinking about what was going on. I knew that I was being very short. I was angry all the time. Um, I was drinking um, 
more beer than what I would usually do, but I all played that up to just social drinking with the buddies or have having a beer before I mow the lawn and another one after I mow the lawn and those sorts of things. Never ever being drunk and having a drunk alcoholic problem, right? Yeah, it was always at, at home with friends. Totally. It wasn't anything that was interfering with work or causing issues like that. But it it was a coping mechanism that I was using just to forget about the stuff that was rattling around in my head. One of the things that Julie um, didn't mention in the signs and symptoms was um, I would go to work and I'd be really good at making split-second decisions on, on medical calls or on fire calls or making decisions on operation stuff at the firehouse. However, I'd go home and she'd ask me, what do you want for dinner tonight? And I just couldn't do it. Like, if she wanted to, if she'd ask me, what color shirt do you want to wear? I'd, I'd be like, I, I don't know. Make that decision for me. I couldn't make the simplest decisions. Well, because, I mean, to me, that kind of makes sense. You're, you have to make every decision while you're at work. So you come home and it's almost like your brain shuts off. Like, nope, I get to rest now. More, more importantly, what that is, is that it's, it's a decision that doesn't have to be made that is um, dependent on my survival, mm-hmm. right? All those other decisions at work, whether, whether it was just small decisions at work, I had to make those decisions because if I didn't have that job, I wouldn't survive. So I did an awesome job of doing that at work. I come home where I'm not surviving or where it's not a threat to me or, or my, my old brain. I'm sure Matt will talk about this in a little bit. I just couldn't make those decisions. Yeah, quick quick neuroscience um, derailment, and we'll come back to the story. Basically, what Chris is talking about is in, in our brains, we have this part of our brains called the limbic system. The main component of the limbic system is this part of the brain called the amygdala. The amygdala is responsible for sending us into fight-or-flight mode. And so if I get triggered, could be anything that reminds me of something traumatic that I've experienced or if I get into a situation in which my survival has actually come into question, my amygdala kicks on and it shoots out two chemicals, adrenaline and cortisol. These two chemicals put my brain into fight or flight mode and immediately my senses are sharpened. Heart rate quickens, pace of breathing quickens, decision making sharpens, visual enhancements happen, hearing enhancements happen, you become literally a primed human being ready to take on anything that happens. At work, that's your natural environment where you have all of those things going on. You're amped up. You're ready to go. Guess what? That's homeostasis. That's the baseline. That's where you need to be. All of a sudden, you go home and you don't need your senses sharpened. Guess what you're going to do? You're going to snap. You're going to be irritable. You're going to be angry because your senses are always sharpened, right? Guess what bugs people the most? Loud noises. Bam. If I would have done that day one working with Chris, he would have jumped, right? Sometimes what happens is our limbic system, this old brain Chris is talking about, actually takes over and becomes the dominant part of the brain. After repeated traumatic events, that's very likely, And so basically what Chris is saying is, I go to work, I'm on point. 
my brain's working great. My brain is working where it's supposed to be working because that's what it knows. I go home, all of a sudden, all my adrenaline, all my cortisol actually tanks and I have none. No ability to get my heart rate back up. No ability to have my stress hormones So everything just kind of shuts down. Oh yeah. And so the most common symptoms that happen when you're at home are depression, sadness, isolation, loneliness. And guess what you do to numb that? Drink. You go drink. You go avoid. You go do your thing. And then anyone bugs you and gets you out of your depressive state, all of a sudden, guess what kicks into gear? Limbic system, adrenaline, cortisol goes way back up above whatever normal levels were before. And you're going to snap, get angry, get pissed off. And then I have a trigger and then an intrusive memory and yada, yada, yada. The point is, it's this horrifically repetitive cycle that needs intervention. And without intervention, it will continue and it will get worse. And I would say it was, I'd, I'd say to him sometimes, like, you're a PMS. You're just so moody and I don't know how things are going to happen. And I was reading a book he had brought home called The Challenges of the Firefighter Marriage. And they hit on that very subject. And I wish I could remember the specific name of it, of what they defined it as. But it is actually worse than the, the emotions and hormones going on during PMS. And it was just kind of a aha moment of I'm not imagining this with him this is this is real these hormones everywhere well and and on top of that like I would come home and not have any time to decompress Mm -hmm. and uh, this actually just happened the other day Uh, I come home the kids are already up ready to go to school and I, I push the button for the garage door and the garage comes and like there's three kids that are absolutely excited to see me because they haven't seen me for 48 hours. They want their dad, right? And literally my brain's telling me that this is a threat. This is a threat. And I step out and I'm like, get back in the house. You know, like I can't deal with this right now. And, and you know, it was one of those moments post treatment and I'm like, oh my God, like take a deep breath switch that system off, do some four by six breathing. You've talked about that a little bit. Um, for, for me, the, the things that I use are, are certainly breathing, being mindful in the moment and stop. Like slow your roll, take a deep breath, observe what you're thinking, observe what's in front of you. Is that really a threat? And then proceed uh, with, with a little bit of caution. Um, I, I did that and I went inside. I'm like, guys, I'm, I'm sorry. Like, I was not in the right mind. I thought I was still at work. I apologize. Calm down, moved on. But uh, that's uh, that's a real thing. Like you need some decompression time for your mind to understand that you are not under under attack or under threat, or you're not uh, in fight or flight anymore. And it's really interesting post treatment to be able to actually just just simply by breathing turn that system off mm-hmm. um, and, and and turn on when you need it. Because it's, it's well, I was going to say, you do need recognize it. the fact that, that you recognized what you had just done. Yeah, that's a huge deal because most of the time, I'd say most without that treatment, you wouldn't have even recognized it. Mm-hmm. It would have been a normal day. You come home and you snap, and it's like, well, what's your problem? I've been working for forty-eight hours. Like, you guys should be able to deal with this. This isn't a me problem. You know what I mean? Well, I've noticed that since he's come back. That I mean, we're not without incidents happening since he's been home but it's been handled way differently than it was pre-treatment and just me learning things and learning how to process things him learning how to process things working with the kids 
it's, it's so different in a good way. Well, and talking through things, I always feel like I, I, even for myself, things I've gone through, I still have similar things happen all the time. I still have, um, my own form of PTSD and things, nightmares and those types of things. But being able to have some tools to help or recognize that, oh, this thought is stupid. This thought is not real. This thought is the story I'm telling myself and I need to stop right now. Where before I would have never done that. It would have just kept going and going and go, you know what I mean? And so having those tools to at least stop, recognize what you're doing and proceed to what you need to do to fix it and change it, that's a huge deal and a huge change that I feel like everybody needs. For sure. And and that's that's kind of where I think we can bring this to the masses, all the listeners out there, and just help you guys kind of understand. Like, like this isn't just something that's reserved for people with post-traumatic stress disorder. Like, what's every time I sit down with somebody in a session or talk to people or whatever, or not even in session, just people in general, you ask somebody how they're doing, 99% of the time they're like, I'm so busy. I'm really stressed. <laughs> right? Oh, Be- my... Everybody, Everybody my life is crazy. I do it sometimes and I catch myself like, it's not that crazy. I'm fine. Calm down. But that's, <laughs> but that's, but that's the story, right? That I'm so stressed. I can't handle my shit. And, and if that's the story that I keep believing and keep telling myself, I'm going to ramp myself up. And a lot of the stuff we're talking about today, where you just kind of go off the handle for no reason, everybody does that. And if you believe that it's your fault and there's something wrong with you, and that's the reason why you're going off and like, oh, if I could just handle my stuff better, I'd be okay. Like, guys, let's let's be real here. We all have major stressors. The world we live in today is extremely fast-paced. The standards that we hold for ourselves are perfection. We we expect ourselves to do everything right and we make one little tiny mistake. We're the worst person on earth. Like that that's not anybody's specific story. That's everyone's narrative. And so as we hopefully can kind of think about this just a little bit differently moving forward, we can understand that the story we tell ourselves, we tell ourselves. And I get to decide what story I tell myself because whatever story I believe is the story that I live. And if we can step back from being characters in a story and step into being the narrator of our story, we can literally change the entire landscape of our lives and how we go about daily living. And that's kind of the challenge that we we have to pose to ourselves. Like, what does that look like for us individually? I think you, Chris, have, have figured out what that is, right? Before you were a victim, you were, you were struggling, you were, you know, everything around you was chaos until you learned that that was just a story. The truth was, You were the calm in the chaos. You were the calm in the storm. And once you believe that, everything changed. Yeah, there's there was uh, several pivotal moments in my treatment that um, you know I really took to heart. And one of the things was was uh, I remember we were in the pain box uh, at Deer Hollow, where let's um, be clear, I don't really have like a box of pain. (laughs) This is a metaphor for it is being a metaphor, emotional. But it's crazy because I've been through the pain box. Yeah. And it's funny because once you know what that is and you yeah. recognize it, it's like, I get you. It's like, leaning into emotions. It does, it's, it's not actually putting yourself there yeah. in that yeah. deep, dark place so yeah. you can get through it. Yes. 
Anyway, so you're in the paint I'm, box. I'm gonna I'm gonna just sidetrack here for just a second. When you finish Deer Hollow, you get a coin. It's much like a challenge coin, and, and on the back of that coin, it says the cure for the pain is the pain. Like you really have to get into your emotions and the things that hurt you the most, and talk about those and and deal with those mm-hmm. bef- before you can cure them. And so that's what we're talking about here is that. Um, the pain box at Deer Hollow is, is uh, described that way because that's where we have group therapy with everybody together, and that's also our classroom. That's the trauma learning classroom on how we can deal uh, with turning on and off our Olympic system, um, as well as uh, shame and perfection and all these things that we tell ourselves Um, but the thing that one of the many things that I took away was when you were talking about uh, you and how you talk to your children and you said, I am enough now, or you are, you are enough now and you can do more, right? Mm -hmm. Instead of, um, telling them that they have to be first or they have to do all these great things or they have to be perfect because it's, there's no such thing. And, and what that really did for me is it, it made me understand that I am doing enough right now and that I don't have to be perfect. And when I make those mistakes, I have opportunity for growth. If we did not have mistakes and we didn't, uh, if we always did things perfect, we would live in a world that would look like Pleasantville. Oh, that sounds awful. That's oh, like that's like my so own personal annoying. hell. Yeah, yeah. Like like firemen only rescuing cats out of trees. That's all we would know how to do, right? Yeah. Nobody wants that. The cats would come out of the or, trees themselves. Let's right? be honest, <laughs> right. a world where you do save everybody. Yeah, yeah. Would we all want that? Absolutely. And everybody's so happy. It's like, oh it, no. But it's not. We don't learn. It's like you've always said. You there is no. You cannot ever achieve happiness without getting through that pain without, without having sorrow. They don't exist without each other. And so it's like, yeah, if we didn't ever deal with these things, we'd never know what good is because it's all just monotonous and yep. boring. And yep. it's like, it's like rolling hills, right? You gotta, you gotta be in the valleys before you can be on the peaks. And uh, that's kind of how I'm seeing my life right now. It's okay for me to have feelings of anger and disappointment in myself and not know things and not be perfect and make mistakes because I am human. And and I just deal with that differently now because I I know that that provides me for an opportunity of, of growth and, and to get to that goal of being on, on the top of the peaks. So I guess, sorry, I, as you were talking earlier, I was thinking, cause you've come a long way, you've gotten through a lot of things and that doesn't mean it's over. That doesn't mean you're done and you never will be. And that's what I've recognized in myself. Um, so with me, I've just listening to you, I've had a lot of PTSD for my situation with my daughter and it took me a while for one. I didn't even know it was PTSD for a little bit until someone, I don't remember who someone said that. And I'm like, no, that's just, it was probably me. That's just what firefighters, I'm not a firefighter. I'm not a doctor. I'm not a, that didn't happen. I don't have that. Most people think it's military personnel. Yeah. Or military. You go go to war and that's when you get PTSD. Yeah. Yeah. And, but then when I was having nightmares every night and this reoccurring, you know, the situation all day, every day, 
I recognized obviously that that's what it was. So for me, I think, um, some things that were happening to me for a while after was anytime I'd hear a paramedics drive by or a fire truck by drive by it, like you said, took me right back there. And I would have to, there was one time I was actually driving to something I had to go to and an ambulance drove by and I had to pull over and I was just like, I couldn't even drive because I, I just was out of control. Right. Do you still have those? And how do you, do you, you have that quick way of getting yourself back because that's what I've had to learn. And so I'm sure that's something you have daily when you are on the job, right? Yeah. You know, those, those threats are always going to be there. Those, those, um, you, I guess the clinical term is triggers. I love that you call them threats <laughs> because that's, that's what we think they are. But that's yeah. what it feels that's what like. It feel- yeah. What did you say? Feels. <laughs> right. That's what it feels like. And I often say, I've said it a hundred times, probably on the podcast, how we feel and the truth are often very different. So you recognizing that it's a trigger, that's the truth. It's triggering. It's not that my survival has actually come into question. It's not that there's an actual threat. It's a perceived threat. And I get to decide what I want to do with it. So yeah, you have a threat come up or a trigger and... And it's just that um, I I think being in a practice of being mindful and knowing that I'm in recovery... I'm always going to be in recovery. This isn't something that you go and you get fixed like a broken bone and you move on and, and, and it's okay. Like that broken bone needs rehab and it's never going to be the same again, right? You're probably going to have a little bit of a weaker bone or a weaker leg, but can you go back to doing the same things that you did after, after recovery and, and continue to work on strengthening? I see this mental wellness the exact same way. And we call it PTSD. And what I like to call it is post-traumatic injury because that's what it is. It's an injury to our brain. We just can't see it on the exterior. And we've talked about this a lot on the podcast, or, or Matt has, uh, and, and you have, Brittany. And and if we... Oh, sorry, Bethany. I don't care. It doesn't bother me. <laughs> <laughs> if, we, if we start looking at this, and, and I just had the other day a conversation with a fireman that said, yeah, but if I tell somebody that I'm suicidal, they'll fire me. And I'm like, but, but I'm standing in front of you and I just told you that I was suicidal and I'm standing here with my job today. I mean, it was that obvious, right? And, and there's still that threat. I think in some agencies, that is a real threat today and we need to work on, on that because can people recover from suicidal thoughts? Can people recover from post-traumatic injuries? Yes, we can. Absolutely, we can. We just have to give the, the brain time enough to heal and the right tools and, and um, uh, just therapies and, and medications, if that's what's needed, to heal the brain. And, and that's the way I look at it today. It's no different than um, you know a fireman getting crushed in a building and having, having to be off work for a year to get rehabbed. Uh, police officer getting shot in the leg. Like, yeah, he's probably going to have pain for a long time. Eventually, that's probably going to go away through having therapies and treatments and PT and all those sorts of things. And that's what I'm engaged in today. The way my life looks today from what it did 60 days ago is way different. Way different. 
And I think that's the hardest part. It's like you said, so if someone gets crushed by a building or shot, it's so visual. You see it. And because you can't see it, it's like we assume that everyone's fine and everyone's great. And, you know, there's not, it's not like any of us want to walk around going, oh, my life sucks and I'm so depressed and I'm so... That's not what we want. And so we're constantly putting on a show. But at the same time, it's like you said, whether it's in therapy, whether it's with our best friend or our spouse or someone... We have to be more honest in our conversations and more open with what's the reality. Because the more we hide it, the more we seclude ourselves and our internal, and it's just making it worse. We're just getting deeper and deeper into that mental, that depression or that negative state, which is none of us can survive in by ourselves. Boom. So, so Bethany Bullet knowledge drop. That was awesome. <laughs> Boom. Please. So I know Julie. Chris sat down with a friend of ours a couple weeks after he got back and told him what was going on. And he, this is a, a friend outside the fire service and he had no idea any of this was going on with, with us. And when I was talking to the friend of ours, I, I told him, I go, you just, you hide it. You don't, you put on this facade of everything's great and grand. But I think now, obviously, it's like, you know what? Guess what? This happened. This went on in our family. We're going to talk about it. And, and it may happen again. Yeah. And, because, and, so, and that's okay. Mm-hmm. And as a spouse, you're going to recognize, chances are you're going to recognize what's going on with your first responder well before they do. Because you're... Your mind's a little more together. Um, and you haven't seen it. Right, you haven't seen the right, same things he's seen. Right. And and Chris, that's on that. Chris has been always really good about protecting me from what he sees at work and doesn't come home and, and share that with me because I don't need to know it. I really don't. So, th- I mean, that's been a, a, a good thing. But, yeah, I mean, I recognized things well, well before he did. So I think the education side to spouses on this is huge, too, because that's what's going to catch a lot of this. That's a cool idea, actually. That'd be fun to do, like, a spouses for first responder conference. Because that, I mean, is that even done? Oh, and I kind of, I always think right? in any That's situation, cool. people are always, it's, we're so worried, and for good reason, about the person that's was there, right? The person that saw it, the person mm-hmm. that dealt with it, that we really overlook the spouse, the person that's trying to help them deal with it every day. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot, the spouse, the kids, there's a lot of people kids. that are affected and need help as well because they, they need to learn, okay, how do I deal with my dad when he comes home from work and has a meltdown or has, how do I handle that instead of, so they don't take it on themselves at the same time. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we just got done talking about how your mental wellness um, doesn't have any outward signs. And, and I can also disagree with that because Julie saw a lot of those things happening to me. Good point. My, my drinking, like I lied to myself about the drinking, uh, before coming to deer hollow. Um, I think even on intake, I said, Oh yeah, I was having about six to 10 beers a week, you know, a just, day. just <laughs> socially. Not that, right. Not that bad. And then by about day four at treatment, when I was having night sweats, the nurse is like, mm, how much did you have to drink before you came? And I literally had to count them up and I was like, Holy crap. I had like 10 beers the day before I came to treatment. And she's like, is that normal? Like you're, is that normal drinking? And I'm like, yeah, I guess. Like, so we don't even know that that's what's mm-hmm. going on because I told myself, I'm fine. I'm not ever getting drunk. 
you know, but I was drinking that much throughout the whole day just to deal with the stuff, right? Exactly. So there's it's coping. Totally. Yeah. So there's these outward signs, me being very short, uh, not being able to make decisions, uh, sleeping like three hours a night. She knew that. Like I was tossing and turning, could never sleep, and, and three hours was normal for me. Well, and when he told me, when I spoke to him on the phone one day when he was down at Deer Hollow, he said about having the, the alcohol abuse problem, and I told him, I said, yeah, I know. Well, what do you mean you know? Well, I know. I saw it happening with you. Well, why didn't you tell me? You weren't going to listen to me. You, you probably told him. You weren't. I mean, <laughs> I could see it. it. I just, yeah. it, it wasn't a surprise when he said it because yeah. I saw it. Yeah. So there are all these outward signs. And, and also, do we hide those things from the, the people that don't want to know? Absolutely. But you can't hide those from your spouse's. And, and they're going to know right up front. So like what Matt said, like absolutely we need to have awareness uh, at the spouse yeah, level cool. because there are, there are rescuers when we, when we get into these things. So we need to be providing them with resources that we can provide for our first responders. Yeah, first response for the first responders. Yeah. yeah. Having him go to yeah. Deer Hollow was one of the hardest decisions we made as a couple but one of the best decisions we could have ever done. I mean, it was the hardest, what, 25 days that I've gone through. I hit every emotion that existed from, like, the stages of grief. Of Like, I was angry when he left. I screamed as soon as he drove out of the driveway. I was, I was in the house screaming because I was so just upset and hurt and angry and just stuff I couldn't even describe. And scared. And scared. And the yeah. emotions. I mean, before he left, he said, oh, I, I can just stay. I'm like, no. You're, you're not staying, you're going, you're going to go. And that whole, that whole time he was there was just, it was hard, but it was so worth it. And I mean, there's things I had to deal with and bettering myself and getting with a counselor myself to, you know, make more self-worth. Um, there was times I couldn't even sleep with the light uh, lights off when he was gone. Just those little things and anxiety hating me and, well, it's such a it's change. Just, That's it a was. huge change. I mean, in you're your in life. your own house, and a piece of my heart was gone. It wasn't mm-hmm. wasn't home with me, and it hurt like hell. What's it like having it back? It's good. <laughs> you don't have to answer that. <laughs> I, I well, because Chris was like not all Chris for a while. I mean, you were talking three years ago. Yeah, and probably guy. maybe even before that. But yeah, and now. I. I was cautiously optimistic when he was going to be home because I didn't know what things were going to be like. Because you you don't know. You know, I mean, I knew talking to him on the phone that he was getting better. And there was a day probably mid into treatment for you. I was at work and I had a complete anxiety attack breakdown to where I had to call him. And I couldn't because I couldn't talk to him because it was the middle. Actually, it was the middle of the morning. Um, and they, you guys were in group, I think. And I just left a message and I was, I was a wreck. It had just hit me so hard at that point. He called me, talked me through, talked me off my ledge, went through stop with me, did breathing with me. And that was just one of those points of like, yeah, he's, he's changing. Cause normally something like that wouldn't happen. And it just, it's so good to have a husband back and to have him be there. And we've had a few, you know, fights since he's been home, nothing bad. 
one we got into, like we called the other morning, a, it was a morning of a shit show. <laughs> <laughs> um, normally that would have just festered and carried on and never been talked about until another fight happened. But he made the effort to come to my work and pick me up for lunch. And we sat and talked about it where that never would have happened before treatment. And that's happened with other, you know, circumstances. Cause I, I, my communication before he went sucked. It just sucked. Cause over the years things built up and I just wouldn't communicate. And I'm slowly coming out of that. We're learning to talk about things and communicate. And he just so much that he learned there. And it's just come back a whole new, a whole new person. That's so weird that like it comes down to communication, oh right, Matt? Gosh. I mm-hmm. mean, I don't think we ever talked about that. We ever talked about that <laughs> on here? <laughs> <laughs> it's like every time. That's I think that's my favorite thing about every podcast we've ever done. It all comes to like the same head every time. Mm-hmm. Like connection, communication, vulnerability, vulnerability. <laughs> like, and those that's things it. are huge. I mean. For sure, my takeaway today is all, especially first responders, but so many people need, it's not just therapy, it's that connection. It's the thing we keep talking about. It's the fact that it's like you said, I sucked at communicating. Well, a lot of us do. A lot of us grew up. I remember before I got married, I I sucked at communicating. I would just, I get mad. I'm just not going to talk to you for a while. I'll let you know when I'm going to talk to you again. Yep. It might be a while. That's exactly what would happen. And those are the things we all have to work through. And as long as we're willing to work through them, as long as we're willing to always try, it will always get better. The second we're not willing to try, not willing to change, that's when we suck. And I was willing to work through all this with him. I mean, we had a a phone session with Matt where Matt called me to go through, you know, this meeting or this phone session I was going to have with Chris. And I laid it all out to Chris and I had to communicate it all. And as hard as it was, it was... Yeah, you put it, it out yeah. there and you can finally squash it. You can yeah. finally move past it. Mm-hmm. Because as long as it's all sitting in your head, it, getting bigger getting... and bigger, because your story is just getting worse, right? It's just, it's just festers. Mm-hmm. And it just, yeah, it turns into this bomb mm-hmm. when the reality is it could have been taken care of weeks ago if you just spit yeah. it out, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's stagnant that was water. A brutal day, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> Thank you. It was, it was hard, welcome. but it was awesome. Well, for me, um, I, as we're wrapping up here, just to kind of pull together my thoughts, I think, um, and this wasn't really said, but there's just so much hope out there. And I take yours. Sorry, bro. There's just a lot of hope, man. I'm like, like if you get if you get vulnerable and you get real with yourself and you're willing to take a good hard look at the way you see the world you're going to change how you see the world. And there's a lot of hope. You can do that by yourself. You can do that reading a book. You can do that right now. You can do that with a therapist. You can do that with your spouse or partner or best friend. I mean, it, it is a very doable, possible thing, but you have to do it. So I was going to say, when you were talking earlier, you said something and I... It was, I'm sure it was a Brene Brown book somewhere because that's where everything in my head comes from. But she talks about how we wake up, the first thing we say to ourselves in the morning is, I'm tired. Mm-hmm. So you wake up and you've already told yourself you're tired. And then if you're like, oh, the busy thing, I've got so much to do today. It's like negative, negative, negative. When it's like, wake up, 
and it's, I'm awake. I'm alive. Let's do this. Beautiful day. We have to change our mindset and we have to change it from the second we wake up in the morning and we have to work to keep it changed because it'll go right back. The B10 knowledge bombs are flowing hard today. <laughs> I mean, I, I sit here and you guys talk and I just think like, oh my gosh, my brain just starts, feels fried. You're so smart. No, I'm not smart. I've you just are. been through hell and I'm trying to like dig out <laughs> every day. Almost like you're like, you've been through a lot of really difficult things and now you like have all this wisdom. Odd that that would be the end result. Oh, no, no. Uh, I don't know. Someday. What about, how about you guys? What's kind of your... Uh, your takeaways from this? Oh man, I think just being here and being vulnerable, telling my story, uh, helps me in in my continued recovery of uh, whatever you want to call this. Um, for me, it was putting the bravado aside, recognizing and taking like what you just said, taking a really deep look at me as a human being and what I was doing and, and what I didn't like to be doing specifically and um, providing myself with some hope to change that and what I had to do to, to get that. Because if I was going to continue down that pathway, you know, I was going to be in my third suicide attempt. And the more times that we get to that point in our life, the more likely that we're going to go ahead and go through with those sorts of things. Um, so I had to look at me as a human being and as a person and, and go, I'm not just a fireman. I'm not just a captain. I'm also a family man. Um, I'm a, a husband. I'm a, a father to three beautiful children. Um, I'm, I'm a mentor in our B club. I mean, I, I raise our own food. Uh, I'm so many other things than just being a fireman, and um, that really gave me, uh, one, an identity, but two, just hope that there is something out there that's different than all the crap that we see at work, and to be, be able to just move forward from that. So I, I really had to be vulnerable and get down and, and do the work, and I'm still constantly doing the work every single day, and I plan on doing that until I die. Um, because we have to, and if we don't, then, um, you know, the choice was pretty clear to me that, that I wasn't going to be a fireman anymore and I probably wasn't going to live, survive it. So there is hope. There is hope out there for both firemen and, and our spouses to, to help us in this, uh, journey of ours. I guess just don't, my biggest thing with this is don't be afraid to ask for help because that's, that's the first step to getting better, whether you're the spouse that's stepping forward and saying, I need help, this is going on in my life. I, I'm on that same line with the hope thing because it, it was something that stuck with me from that first time uh, Amy came up and talked and she, she said that there's, there's always hope. That stuck with me through weeks after that for the whole time Chris was in treatment and I'd hear a song at church and then be in there and that just... that you can come out better on the other side. The whole process of it, I'm not going to lie, sucks, but it is so worth it on the other side and to know we can move forward and be happy and still have our struggles, but know how to deal with it now and know that those tools are out there and they exist. You guys, thank you so much. That was awesome. I learned a lot and I, I loved hearing 
how you got through everything because you guys are doing awesome. You're doing amazing. So thank you for sharing this with us. You're welcome. Well, thank yeah, you guys. You're welcome. And thank you guys for doing the podcast. Like, uh, we, we can't wait to hear the next one come out. And uh, it, it certainly helps me in my recovery hearing other people's. It's like group therapy for me or an AA meeting or whatever. I just get to hear what other people being vulnerable really helps me connect with those folks too. So thanks for putting this on. I'm glad because that's what it is for me. This is my therapy. Yeah. I sit yeah. and listen to you talk and tell me your story and it helps me deal with life as well. So. Well, every episode, if you don't, even if you don't think it's gonna, you're going to get something out of it, you do. Thank you. Super cool. You guys are the best. Thanks, guys. Thank you to Chris and Julie Burkirk for coming on the show. Thank you to my co-host, Bethany Tenney, always willing to join me in my crazy journey of, I don't know what this journey is, but it's helping people. That's the point. Got to help people. Brindy, Kevin, our never-ending support system. Thank you to them. They're our production team. Brindy runs our social media, so be sure to reach out to her. She's going to get more vulnerable here soon, too, and like sharing her story on social media, which I'm super excited for you guys to get to know her because she's kind of my favorite person on the planet. Uh, as well, thank you to all the Finding Strength listeners for all of your support. We've had a flood of love and outpouring recently, and it's been really, really cool. If you wouldn't mind taking that flood of love onto the internets and writing a review on iTunes or the podcast app is preferably where we like to have it done. Just so you know, like the reason why we're always heavy on the Apple side of things, we know how many listeners we have um, and downloads and stuff like that. And like the vast, vast majority is through Apple. So that's the place to go to do the reviews. If you could do that, that'd be freaking fantastic. Leave a five-star review. Tell us what you think as well. Follow us on Facebook. Follow us on Instagram and get your support however you want it. Reach out to us. We're grateful to Denny's Pizza for being our long-term sponsor. And if any of you out there are interested in donating or being a sponsor to the show, uh, this thing is growing. We're stoked how much it's growing. I mean, we're like over 5,000 downloads at this point. And so in the, in the future, it's going to get even better. Next week, we have a very awesome episode coming to you. And I'm excited for you guys to hear about it. So stay tuned for that. Uh, Alicia Nuttall, if you know who she is. She was on Cupcake Wars and she like won it. She's like kind of got some fame going on. She's freaking rad. You guys are going to love it. I'm excited for you guys to meet her, hear her story. So be sure to stay tuned for that. And we will see you next week on Finding Strength. You guys rock. Thank you.